Tonight we're just going to be looking at two verses, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so even if you are brand new to the Christian faith, or brand new to church, just open your Bible probably to the first page or the second page. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we ask for your help as we consider this text tonight and its meaning, its application to our lives. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to give you a bit of a heads up that it will be a longer sermon tonight than I've been giving you over the last couple of months while we've been doing uh, Zoom online. But I wasn't sure how to break this up into two or more, so we're going to take it all together tonight. So gird up the loins of your mind and let us begin. Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi are two of the best football players or soccer players in the world. And a few years ago, on the night of January 11th, 2016, some vandals spray-painted a statue of Cristiano Ronaldo with the name and jersey number of Lionel Messi while everybody else slept. When Ronaldo's hometown woke up the next morning, their beloved hometown hero's statue was defaced. It was vandalized. It was distorted from its original design. And what's the significance of that action? Was it an act of respect for Ronaldo, in whose image the statue was made? No, of course not. It was an act, to the contrary, it was an act of disrespect to Ronaldo, in whose image the statue had been made. Never mind that the statue is not actually Cristiano Ronaldo. It's just a statue. It's not a person. It was made in his image. It was made to represent him. And so to deface the statue that represents Ronaldo is to disrespect Ronaldo himself. Keep this idea in mind as it will become increasingly relevant as we work our way through tonight's text. We're looking specifically at the two verses that I just read for you from Genesis 1 tonight, although we'll be referring to several other verses in the rest of the Bible as we go. And what we're trying to explore tonight is the idea of the image of God. What does it mean when Genesis 1 tells us that humans were made in the image of God? What are the implications and applications for us 
of the truth that humans were made in the image of God. What does it mean for us tonight, here and now in the 21st century, that so long ago, way back when, in the beginning, God created humans in his image? These are some of the sorts of questions that we're trying to answer tonight. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 under three headings. And the headings are all what's. First, what we are. Second, what went wrong. And third, what now? Everything we cover will fall under one of those headings. So let's start with what we are. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as we read, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Then skip down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Obviously, the two key words for our study tonight are image and likeness. Man, which refers to mankind, or all humans, male and female. Man was created in God's image, after God's likeness. As we begin to consider what we are then, as humans, we must understand what these words mean, image and likeness. So let's begin with image. John Currid, who's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, states that the Hebrew word for image originally meant something cut from an object. For example, a piece of clay cut from a sculpture. In such a case, there exists a concrete resemblance between the object and the image. In other words, the word for image conveys the same idea as we are trying to communicate when we say that a son is cut from the same cloth as his father. <clears throat> There's an idea of organic unity implicit in the original Hebrew word for image. And Currid goes on to say, in the Bible, Selem, which is the Hebrew word for image, Selem also denotes a statue of himself that a king would erect to serve as a symbol of his sovereignty. For example, Daniel 3. And in Daniel 3, which is the passage that Curran references, a king named Nebuchadnezzar creates a statue, presumably of himself, and it is made of gold. And he commands that when everyone hears the music play, they should bow down and worship this statue. So it's basically like an idolatrous game of musical chairs in reverse. Instead of finding a seat when the music stops, basically you get out of your seat when the music starts and worship this image. So obviously the image that the king has set up, which he expects people to get out of their seat and worship when the music starts, obviously this image that the king sets up is closely intertwined with the king himself. So for the people who he's commanded to worship this image, to do so, to obey him and to worship his image is to respect him, Nebuchadnezzar, the king who has set up the image. And to disrespect the image is to disrespect the king himself, which is why, as you know, if you're familiar with the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fiery furnace 
because the king is not ambivalent whether or not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respect the image that he set up. To disrespect that image is to disrespect him. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace for doing just that. Curid closes his comment then by saying, the fact that Selem, the Hebrew word for image, is applied to humans at creation indicates that they are God's representatives on earth and have a character and being in keeping with that of the deity. In other words, we were made to represent God here on earth. We are not God, just as Nebuchadnezzar's statue is not Nebuchadnezzar himself, but just as Nebuchadnezzar's statue represents him, so God created us to represent him here on earth. In some sense, then, we were made we humans were made to be a statue of God here on earth. We are not physical images of God because God does not have a body, but we are cut from the same cloth, so to speak, bearing a resemblance of nature, and we are his appointed representatives here on earth, statues of God, as it were. At a basic level, that is what it means to be made in the image of God. Being made after his likeness connotes a similarity of being. For a couple of years now, both of my young sons, they're now six and four, but for a couple of years now, they've both been familiar with the difference between the concepts of sameness and similarity. When they were a couple of years younger, very, very little, I realize they're still little now, but when they were even littler, we would be out driving, and if we saw two silver cars of different makes and models, a little game we would play is I would ask them, are those two cars the same, or are they similar? Let's say one was a Nissan and one was a Suzuki. They'd answer, similar. But if they saw, say, for example, two silver-colored Suzuki Swifts of the same year, and I asked them, are those two cars the same or similar? They'd say, the same. And this is the game we would play. In the Council of Nicaea, in the 4th century AD, theologians debated whether Jesus Christ was homoousios, or homoousios, with God the Father. And those are the Greek terms for the same substance or similar substance. The question was whether Jesus Christ was of the same nature as God or whether Jesus Christ was of similar nature to God. Let's leave that question aside for a moment, but I want to make this point. <clears throat> In the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, it's often quoted in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. The word translated into English as likeness in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 
is homoousios, which means of a similar nature. So we are not God. We are not becoming gods, but we are like God in some sense. We are intended by God to be like God, to be similar to God in many ways. So that's what those two terms mean, image and likeness. We are God's statue here on earth, as it were. We are cut from the same cloth as God, so to speak. We are homoousios, of similar substance to God. We were created to be God-like representatives of God here on earth. And this indicates to us something about our responsibilities and something about our essence. Our responsibilities as God's representatives are, unsurprisingly, to carry out God's instructions to us. If you hire a lawyer, she is your representative. If she acts on your behalf in a way that you have not instructed her to do, she is out of order and she is a bad representative. Her responsibility as your representative is to carry out your instructions. So it is with us. As God's representatives, we are to carry out God's instructions to us. That is our responsibility. The scripture uniformly teaches that we are to obey God. This has its roots in our status as image bearers of God. As his representatives, we are to carry out his commands. The 1689 Confession of Faith, which our church holds to, summarizes this idea in chapter 4, paragraph 2, where it says that Adam and Eve were made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts. So though they were not given the law of God in written form, it was written in their hearts at creation, written on their hearts at creation, and they were to obey it along with other specific instructions that they were given at creation. For example, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17. So as image bearers, our responsibility is to obey God. But being image bearers is more than a list of responsibilities. It is an inalienable essence, which means that it is part of who we fundamentally are. We cannot be anything but image bearers of God. Like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, or Simba in The Lion King, if Lord of the Rings is not your thing, we cannot run away forever from the truth about who we are. We are image bearers of God. And though we try to suppress that truth, though we try to deny it, though we try to hide from it, though we try to erase it, we cannot. Trying to escape the fact that we are made in God's image is like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It cannot be done. We can as well unmake ourselves 
as remake ourselves something other than what we actually are. We are, we are image bearers of God. It's part of our essence. And I'm not talking only about Christians. I am talking about all humans. Every human is made in the image of God and is an image bearer of God. Every human being on the face of the earth is an image bearer of God. Every human being. Black, white, blue, orange. Every human being is something like a statue of God upon this earth. Every human being is homoousios, of similar nature to God. Every human being, therefore, has responsibilities toward God. And that is why many people try to avoid this reality. They understand instinctively what Jesus said, that we are to give Caesar what bears Caesar's image and to give God what bears God's image, namely, ourselves. And so many people resent God's claim upon their lives, and so they would rather deny that they are image bearers of God so that they can deny that they have any responsibilities toward God. The fact that we are made in God's image and likeness has implications for our responsibilities to God. But another more readily palatable aspect of this truth is that every human being ontologically possesses inherent worth and dignity. In other words, in simpler words, no matter whether they do worthy and dignified things. Every human being is worthwhile and possesses a basic dignity by virtue of his essence or her essence as an image bearer of God. To put it even more simply and more directly, you are valuable. You are worthwhile. And there is dignity to who you are. Every one of you, everyone that might tune into this broadcast, everyone that does not tune into this broadcast, everyone who doesn't even care and would have no interest in listening to this broadcast, they are valuable, worthwhile, and there is dignity in who they are because each and every one is an image bearer of God. I realize that Prince Harry has or is in the process of uh, renouncing his, uh, I don't know exactly the terminology, so pardon me if you're into such things, but his position in the royal family or whatever the right language is. But a number of years ago, Prince Harry was photographed behaving badly, uh, smoking marijuana, consorting with uh, all kinds of women of dubious reputation in Las Vegas and so on a while back. And at that time, he was still part of the royal family. 
and as part of the royal family, he bore a certain dignity as a prince, regardless of how he carried on. Likewise, you, me, anyone else out there, we all possess an inherent worth and dignity as an image bearer of God, regardless of how we carry on. So not merely do we all have the responsibilities of being image bearers, but we are inescapably, unavoidably all image bearers. We are all image bearers no matter how we act. And there is a certain worth and dignity that accompanies that attribute. So that's what we are. We are all image bearers of God. Now, as John Curran has stated, almost every important doctrine is found in seed form in the book of Genesis. And certainly this is true of the doctrine of the image of God. What we've just discussed is just the seed of the doctrine of the image of God. We see in the early chapters of Genesis that we are made in the image of God, but the idea of the image of God is only in seed form here in Genesis 1, as Curran would say. Without the rest of Scripture, our understanding of what the image of God is, how sin and redemption impact and shape our conception of the image of God, and what it means for us today, would be stunted. Our understanding of the image of God must be informed by no less than Genesis 1, but our understanding of the image of God must certainly be informed by more than simply Genesis 1. So let's look at some selected passages from the rest of Scripture now to see how God further unfolds and develops the idea of the image of God in the rest of his revelation to us. So with this aim, let's move on from our first heading, which was what we are. Now we're going to the second what. What went wrong? If we are all image bearers of God, if we all are image bearers of God, then only two things are possible. Either God is like us, as we presently are now, or we have done a poor job of representing God. Many people assume that the first is true, that God is like us as we presently are now. And the reason then that if God is like us as we presently are now, then he can't be a very good God. In other words, people don't like what they see in other humans who are made in God's image. And they reason then that God must not be very likable either. However, the Bible tells us that it is the second of these options that is actually true. Not that God is like us as we presently are now, but rather that we have done a poor job of representing God. So what went wrong? Instead of fulfilling our role as image bearers faithfully and diligently, we have defaulted on that responsibility and we have become poor representatives of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. This is what the rest of the scripture teaches us. We have done a poor job of being like God, acting like God. We have become poor representatives of him. Defaulting on our responsibility to act in accordance with God's nature, to be like him, to be similar to him, to obey his commands. We have instead gone our own way and we have done whatever we wanted to do. This is what the Bible calls sin. In the Baptist Catechism, question 18 asks and answers, what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin is doing what God has commanded us not to do or failing to do what God has commanded us to do. In other words, sin is doing what we shouldn't or failing to do what we should. If we think through sin from the perspective of the image of God in man, sin is acting in a way that is not similar to God. In a way that is not like God. Sin is acting in a way that is inconsistent with God's nature, in a way that doesn't represent him truly and accurately. Sin is acting in a way that defies God's instructions, even though we're supposed to be following his instructions as his representatives. In other words, sin is disrespecting the God in whose image we are made by misusing ourselves and by misusing others for something other than our actual purpose. Sin is like reshaping the statue of God to make it what we want it to be, rather than respecting what the sculptor has made it to be. Sin is like the vandals who spray-painted Ronaldo's statue with Messi's name and jersey number. Sin is like spray-painting someone else's name on the jersey of a statue of God because we don't like to see God's name there. Sin is like defacing the image of God in man and in doing so, disrespecting God himself. Sin is disrespecting the one in whose image we're made. Now, sin is not a total erasure of the image of God. The image of God is not totally absent from the human race in spite of our sin. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, as well as in James chapter 3 and verse 9, we read that even after mankind's fall into sin, God still expects us to treat one another as fellow image bearers of God. So the image of God is defaced, but not erased in mankind. We are all now like statues with spray paint on them, or worse. We have taken a chisel to ourselves or others, so to speak, and we have tried to make the original image of God unrecognizable. We've tried to twist, distort, pervert, and deny the image of God 
so thoroughly that we may barely be recognizable as image bearers anymore. But the original sculptor knows what he originally formed. And he still reckons each of us, you and I and everybody else out there, God still reckons us to be image bearers. He still considers us image bearers. And he still holds us responsible as his representatives to act according to his instructions. And as his children cut from the same cloth to act according to his nature. So do you see a dilemma emerging? Each of us is like a defaced and vandalized statue, which should look like God, but doesn't. We are therefore in need of repair. And we are in need of forgiveness. We are in need of repair and restoration because we've become poor image bearers. And we need forgiveness because we have not passively become poor image bearers through no fault of our own. Rather, we have acted. We have actively dishonored the one in whose image we are made by refusing to live according to his design for us. So we are like the statues which have been spray painted or distorted. And we are at the same time like the vandals who spray painted and distorted the statues. Therefore, we need both <coughs> restoration and forgiveness. But wait, how have we defaced ourselves and others, you might ask? Isn't sin the really bad things that only some people do? Like murder or rape? I can see how some people have defaced the image of God in others by showing blatant disrespect for human life and value. But I never have, and I would never do such a thing. If that's what you're thinking, there's two important things that you need to know. First, God not only judges outward behavior, but also even your thoughts, motivations, and attitudes. And second, God doesn't grade on a curve. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is just one example of Jesus' teaching that God's law requires more than outward conformity. But sincerity and purity, all the way down to the bottom of our thoughts, motivations, and attitudes. Have you ever had a thought that was not in accordance with God's nature or commands? Ever had an impure motivation? Then even you have become a distorted image of God, a bad representative of God here on earth. And God doesn't grade on a curve which is to say that God will not show you leniency simply because you're not as bad as others. God demands absolute perfection, 
and will act with precise and specific retributive justice for every last one of your sins, even if they weren't as egregious as someone else's sins. This is not a perfect analogy, but it is helpful. When it comes to sin, the human race is like a bunch of swimmers who jump in the sea off the east coast of Barbados here and try to make it to Africa. Some make it farther than others, but every last one perishes in the ocean. We are all guilty and condemned as lawbreakers, poor and shoddy image bearers of God, bad representatives. Maybe you sin one way and I sin another, and still someone else sins another way altogether. Your sin is a little less than mine. Perhaps someone out there has sinned far worse than either of us. It doesn't really matter. We've all broken God's commands. And we are all, therefore, defaced images of God. And we are defacers of the image of God. We are, therefore, both vandalized and vandals. So what we are is image bearers of God. What went wrong is sin. Sin has defaced but not erased the image of God in humans. We've covered enough now for me to unveil the big idea of today's sermon that I want you to remember. Human beings are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of restoration and forgiveness. Let me say that one more time, and I'm going to repeat it probably 10, 15 more times before we finish today. Let this stick in your head. Humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. And this need of forgiveness and restoration brings us to our last point, which is what now? What we are, image bearers, what went wrong, sin, what now? Our third point. What do we do now as poor image bearers? What do we do as those who bear the marks of defilement, perversion, distortion, rebellion, and lies upon our bodies and our souls? Is there any hope for us who have defaced the image of God upon ourselves and upon the people around us? The answer to that question is a resounding yes. Because as Pastor Chris has been preaching about the last few Sunday mornings, as it says in Revelation 21 and verse 5, he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I have two, two points of application of the truth that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. The first point of application God in Christ has set a plan in motion to forgive every sin 
of each of his people and to restore the image of God in them. The God word application is to believe the gospel and be reconciled to God. Believe the good news and be reconciled to God. And there are two aspects to the good news about Jesus Christ related to the image of God in man. The first is the judicial aspect of the forgiveness of sins. And the second is the transformative aspect of the restoration of the image of God in man. Pertaining to the first aspect, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what we need to know. We did not fulfill our responsibility as image bearers properly. We did what God commanded us not to do. We failed to do what God commanded us to do. We were not like God. We were bad representatives who failed to carry out his instructions. Oh, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. As the Council of Nicaea concluded in the 4th century, Christ is not just homoousios, of similar substance or similar nature, but Christ is homoousios, of the same substance as the Father. Christ is the preeminent image bearer of God because Christ is God himself. Christ has, therefore, done everything we should have done, and then some, in terms of being an accurate image of God, an accurate representative of God here on earth. <clears throat> having become flesh, having taken our nature to himself, Christ Jesus walked this earth as the perfect an impeccable statue of God, so to speak, cut from the same cloth, fulfilling all his responsibilities to God, living perfectly as a human for us. And then the only one who does not deserve to die for his sin, because he had none, died on the cross bearing the punishment that we sinners deserve. God's wrath poured out upon him. Why did Jesus come to live this sinless life? Why did he die this punishment-bearing death? As a substitute for image-bearers who have failed in their role and responsibility. Jesus came and lived in the place of bad image-bearers, and died in the place of bad image bearers, so that we who do not and did not fulfill our image-bearing role and responsibility properly can be forgiven without God relaxing His holy standard of justice. Whoever trusts in Jesus 
for the forgiveness of his sins, including the failure to bear God's image properly, will receive pardon for their sins. What good news this is for us sinners. Pertaining to the second aspect of the gospel, the restoration of the image of God in man. Here's what we need to know. God is not content merely to pardon sinners, but has decreed also to transform sinners, to restore us once again to bear his image as we ought to. What this means for the Christian is that God is not content to leave you pardoned, but nevertheless defiled, distorted, dirty, polluted, perverted, bent out of shape, and spray-painted. God has purposed not only to forgive you, but to make you, Christian, look like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect image-bearer. We read in Colossians 3.10 that we have a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 24, we read that in Christ Jesus, we can and we must put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We read in Romans 8.29 that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And his son is, as 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us, the image of God. Now we know that people who do not trust in Christ Jesus will not be forgiven, nor will they be made new. But they will perish in their current bodies and souls in hell, forever separated from God, apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. But God has purposed to make his people new, those whom he has chosen for himself who respond in faith and repentance toward Jesus Christ. God is working in those who are in Christ Jesus, not only to forgive sins, but also to scrub away the spray paint, so to speak, to chisel away unauthorized appendages, so to speak, to repair the cracks and missing pieces, so to speak, to power wash away the dust and dirt from our souls and to make us reflect his image clearly and purely as we were originally intended to do. So what now? The truth that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration means first that we should look for pardon, forgiveness, in and through God's Son, Christ Jesus, and secondly, that we must look to God for restoration in and through his son, Christ Jesus. God stands ready to forgive us for failing to bear his image properly. And God stands ready to restore us to his image as we take on the character of his son. As the maker whose image we bear, only God himself can forgive us for our sin and can restore us to his image properly once again. So we should look to him for pardon and restoration. This is the first point of application. Look to God for the forgiveness and the restoration that you need 
for failing to bear the image of God properly. But the truth that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration, this truth ought not to inform only the way that we relate to God, but also the way that we relate to other humans. We must treat our fellow humans with the dignity and worth that they ought to be treated with because they are patterned after their maker. They are image bearers. Though they are in need of forgiveness and restoration. In our day and age, it is assumed that if you disagree with someone or see some deficiency in someone, that you do not and cannot love them. So we are told by some that the best thing to do is to affirm everything about everyone and never challenge anyone about anything. We are told by the same people that everyone who criticizes or judges is unloving. So the solution on the one hand is just Agree with everybody, avoid confrontation, love everybody. This is one school of thought. On the other hand, there are those who advocate, at least by the example they give us, if not in as many words, there are those who advocate for villainizing those who disagree with you. He doesn't toe the party line, then his opinion is worthless. She doesn't do what we expect her to, then kick her to the curb. We don't need her. So on the one hand, there's affirm and love. On the other hand, there's don't affirm and don't love. But if it is true that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration, then we can see that these polarized ways of relating to others are woefully simplistic. The Bible doesn't give us such neat and tidy assessments of human nature that either we are worthless good-for-nothings with no dignity and value, or that we are impeccable, brilliant, sparkling jewels of purity with no marks against us. Again, the Bible teaches us that we are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of forgiveness and restoration. So the choice of affirming everything or loving nothing in another individual is a false dichotomy. And such simplistic approaches can't account for reality. There is a third way. And much better is the third way. The biblical approach of loving people by affirming what grace you may observe in them, whether that saving grace wrought in them by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, or even just common grace for those who are unbelievers. The third way, the biblical way, is loving people by affirming what grace you may observe in them. 
ways in which they reflect, even if only dimly, something of the Creator. Recognizing where you see the worth, where you see the dignity manifesting itself. Encouraging that, affirming that, embracing that, where they are being true representatives. At the same time, loving them by pointing out areas in which they stand in need of forgiveness and restoration. When we love a statue that has been defaced by, by vandalism, we want to see it restored. What do you think the people in Cristiano Ronaldo's hometown did when they woke up in the morning and saw that their hometown hero's statue had been defaced? I don't know for sure. I didn't research it. But I suspect that they sought to restore the statue rather than to discard it. So it is with people. When we love people in whom we see something of the image of God, we want to see what has been damaged by the vandalism of sin forgiven and restored. We want to see the statue fixed rather than writing it off and discarding it. We want to see people vandalized by the guilt and curse of sin forgiven and made new in Christ Jesus. And so it's not as simple as affirming everything in someone or loving nothing in them. It's loving what is accordant with the image of God in them and pointing them to Christ in order that what sin has marred may be forgiven and restored. Let me try to paint a few mental pictures for you of what this application might look like in real life. <clears throat> a known homosexual man comes into a conservative Bible-believing church. But instead of being met with looks of disgust and shunned after the service, he is welcomed, befriended, shown the love of Christ, and spoken to about the love of God in Christ in order that he might find forgiveness and restoration of the defaced image of God in him. A young mother struggling with anger problems, opens up and shares her struggles with another woman in the church. Her friend reminds her that the love of God never waxes or wanes for his people and reassures her that the friendship that these two women share in Christ won't be broken by her sin, but she's also lovingly confronted about her sin and pointed toward Christ in order that she might find forgiveness and restoration for the defaced image of God in her. An aging couple in the church struggling with various challenges are becoming bitter and grumpy. Instead of being treated dismissively as that old cranky couple and relegated to the sidelines of social life, they are lovingly engaged by people 
in the church who point them toward Christ and encourage them with the hope of Christ that transcends our temporal situations in order that they might find forgiveness and restoration of the defaced image of God in them. Someone shows up to church with a red hat that says, make America great again. Or a t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. And instead of being marginalized by the church, the majority of the church who doesn't see things the same way as this new person, whatever, wherever the majority of the church lands on those sorts of issues, he or she is welcomed anyway. Real, meaningful discussions about important issues ensue in the context of real brotherly love wrought by the gospel. For those of you who tend toward avoiding conflict and prizing niceness above all else, I hope that you see that we can actually love people better by engaging them meaningfully as fellow image bearers rather than offering a shallow and superficial in toto affirmation. For those of you who tend toward writing off entirely those whose beliefs or actions you have a problem with, I hope you can see that loving people as God would have us do involves seeing them and treating them as image bearers, lovingly and with respect, even where they need to be pointed to Christ for forgiveness and restoration of the defaced image of God. By affirming what we see of the image of God in others and pointing them Christward for forgiveness and restoration of what sin has marred, we are actually loving others. Think of it from your own perspective. Would you rather be surrounded by people who don't really know you and don't really care to know you, who don't really engage with your hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, accomplishments, whatever, and just offer superficial platitudes and encouragement and unconditional affirmation to you, or else just write you off entirely because you just can't be bothered to work through anything or would you rather be surrounded by people who actually do care to really know you? People who do care to really engage with your hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, accomplishments. To see the image of God in you. To treat you with worth and dignity. To give you honest and meaningful feedback about what they're seeing in you. Both good and bad. Both realistic and unrealistic both Christ-like and unchrist-like, and lovingly point you toward Christ in order that you can receive the forgiveness and the restoration that you need and really grow and develop as an image bearer of God. If it is indeed true that humans are beings of dignity and worth, patterned after our maker, yet in need of restoration and forgiveness. 
then it ought to affect the way that we relate to God and the way that we relate to each other. We should recognize our responsibility toward God to be image bearers and trust him for forgiveness in Christ Jesus for our failure and trust in his provision in Christ Jesus for help to change. And we should treat the people around us with genuine love that goes beyond superficial affirmation and strays into the sphere of meaningful engagement about issues of image bearing. We need to start having meaningful conversations of encouragement and affirmation with our image bearing friends, family members, coworkers, and neighbors, whether Christian or not, whether they agree with you about everything down the line or not. And we need to stop writing people off altogether when they don't agree with us. And we need to start having Christward pointing conversations of gentle confrontation and correction with our image bearing friends, family members, coworkers, and neighbors, whether Christian or not, whether they agree with you about everything or not. The needs of all people, whether Christian or not, are all the same. We all need forgiveness and restoration of the image of God in us. And we will only find this forgiveness and restoration in and through Christ Jesus, who is the image of God and is the appointed image of God restorer for mankind. And we need to point out to others and have others point out to us where it is that we need to grow in Christ's likeness. So let us all look to Christ ourselves and encourage those around us to continue looking to Christ for forgiveness and restoration of the image of God that we may all become increasingly Christ-like in the days ahead. This is in large part the work of the church. And so let's sing in response, O church, arise.